0: Welcome to What It Takes. Today's episode is bubbling over with stories from one of the most influential figures in American music, Quincy Jones. What It Takes, of course, is a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievements archive. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it.
1: If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance.
0: It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth, darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. Decide.
1: Decide. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs>
0: and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for. But boy, you better not miss them. If you listened to popular music during the 20th century and the 21st, you have heard the work of Quincy Jones. He might have been the trumpeter or the conductor or the arranger when you heard him. He might have been the composer or the producer or the creator of the movie score. He might have been nurturing a band you love that he signed when he was head of a record label. But one way or another, I guarantee you, you have heard the work of Quincy Jones. Fly me to the moon, let me play
1: among the stars. and Let me see what spring is like on... Jupiter and Mars, in other words, hold my
0: hand,
1: in other words,
0: baby, kiss me. Sitting down to pull this episode together, frankly, has been daunting, because covering Quincy Jones' life and career means covering everybody from Count Basie and Ray Charles, to Frank Sinatra and Billie Holiday and Aretha Franklin, to Michael Jackson and Paul Simon, to LL Cool J and Mary J. Blige. It means covering 65 years worth of jazz and rock and soul and R&B and pop. She was more like beauty queen from a movie. We cannot possibly get to all of it, but what we will get to is who Quincy Jones is, where he came from, and what has made him the music machine he is. While I've been talking, you've been hearing snippets of music Quincy Jones ushered into this world. Before we hear his story, let's listen to just a little more. Hey, Bob Rebob! Hey,
1: Bob Rebop! Hey, Bob Rebob! That's
0: Max, your heart is-
1: In the heat of the night, seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow.
0: Yeah, they got a wall in China, it's a thousand miles long.
1: most important part of a, an artist's responsibility is to be a great observer. You know, if it's in human nature, or nature, or just to, to pay attention. <laughs> the rhythm of every music in the world is because it's taken straight from nature. The birds do not imitate flutes, <laughs> it's the reverse. Thunder didn't imitate the drums, you know, it was the reverse. And so the elements of nature, when it comes from that, that's the most powerful force there, is just like a melody. You can study orchestration, you can study harmony and theory and everything else, but melodies come straight from God. There's really no technique for melodies, really. And uh, so that's, I guess, there's something about music that's always fascinated me, and I apply what the essence of that's about in everything I do, whether we do film or magazines or whatever it is, uh, uh, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't see it. You just feel it, and it hangs in the air. It owns, it, it dominates every time period, you know. String quartets had its own time period, and nobody can ever change it because it's hanging up there in heaven someplace.
0: The Academy of Achievement recorded this conversation in 2000. The interviewer was journalist Irv Drasnan. There's also a 1995 interview in the Academy's archive that I'll pull from for this episode. What I found so striking in both conversations was the range and depth of Quincy Jones' interests and expertise. He's had the creative output of a dozen people, literally, and yet he has still found time for deep dives into philosophy, politics, science, history, you name it. All that knowledge has fueled his outlook and his music, as have the dramatic, challenging circumstances of his childhood.
1: We were in the heart of the ghetto in Chicago during the Depression, and uh, every block, it's probably the biggest black ghetto in America, every block, it also is the spawning ground probably for. Every gangster black and white in America, too. So we were around all of that. Every, we saw that every day. There was a policeman named Two-Gun Pete, black policeman that used to shoot teenagers in the back every weekend. And everything happened there all the time. A gang on every street, the Vagabonds, the Giles AC, the Scorpions, are just on and on. And they had, In each gang, they had the, the um, Dukes and Duchess junior and senior, which accommodated everybody in the neighborhood. That was the whole idea for unity, really. And our uh, biggest struggle every day was uh, uh, we were either running from gangs or with gangs and was just getting to school and back home because if your parents aren't home all day, you know, it's a, it's a notorious track. I, I still have, to have uh, the <laughs> medals here from the switchblade through my hand pinned to a tree or, I had an ice pick here in the temple one time. Uh, you know, but when you're young, you know, nothing, nothing harms you, nothing scares you or anything. You don't know any better. And uh, the schools were the roughest schools probably in America. I saw teachers getting hurt, and maimed, and everything, every day. And it was, it, was, it was everyday stuff. And it's amazing. Young people get used to things very quickly, even languages. Um, and some summers, my father would take us down to visit our grandmother in Louisville, who was an ex-slave. Susan Jones, and she had a, a shotgun shack, they call it. And no electricity, a well in the back. a coal stove, kerosene lamps. We used to take baths. They have these big coal or uh, uh, heavy black iron uh, pots that take the top off of the stove to get it heated quicker and wait and wait and wait until it boils and you pour it in a big tin tub on the floor and then it'll take you another 20 minutes to do that. I mean, I remember the process and uh, she used to say, go down to the river and grab the rats to still have the tails moving. She'd cook the rats, she'd take uh, greens out of the backyard and uh, cook the greens, fry the rats with onions and so forth on a cold stove. And you'd see like almost ice on the floor at night, you know, when it was just a cold in the wintertime in Kentucky. And a lot of these things I, I didn't want to really deal with. I, I asked my brother before he died, you know, I said, you know, is this an aberration in my mind? He said, no, what are you talking about? That's the way it, way it was. So, um, and he kind of affirmed everything that really happened.
0: There was another thing that really happened in Quincy Jones's life, something that he buried safely in his past for six decades.
1: About five or seven years old, my mother was uh, placed in a mental institution. And so we were with our father, who worked very hard, and we had to figure a lot of things out. So we, we spent most of our life almost like little kind of street rats, just running around the street you know, until we were 10 years old. My father worked for uh, uh, Julian Black, the people that, that ran Joe Lewis's life. Joe Lewis lived in one of the buildings we uh, lived in. And after one of the fights, he gave the gloves to my father. And a kid down the street had a BB gun that I wanted. So when my father went to work, I took the gloves and traded the gloves for a BB gun. <laughs> <And> <laughs> My father wore my tail out, and went over to get the gloves
0: back. When his dad returned, he brought a woman with him who would become Quincy's stepmother. She was rough around the edges, and not very kind. She'd had a tough life, like a lot of people in the neighborhood but it was a neighborhood loaded with characters, and character.
1: We loved all this drama, all kids loved that. You know, we used to go to a place called Drexel Wine and Liquor, We'd go up these big steps and the administrative offices upstairs and you'd see everything you saw in Elliot Ness Untouchables, two-way mirrors and so forth, the guy's Tommy guns and hats and cigars, we loved it, you we couldn't understand why Daddy wanted to keep us away from that element. Uh, one day he came by a barber shop when we were about ten years old and says, "We leave in town."
0: Quincy Jones explained that his father was a talented carpenter, so he was in demand and worked for a lot of people. Joe Lewis's manager, but also two men known as the Jones Boys. Now the Jones Boys owned a five and dime, but according to Quincy Jones, it was a front for their more lucrative and less legal line of work, the numbers racket, or what was then called the policy racket. The Jones boys were not related to Quincy Jones's family, but their line of work affected his father's business nonetheless.
1: So he's, one day he said, let's get out of here. And I think what happened is Capone took over the policy racket from the Jones boys. The Jones boys had to leave town fast. And we were right behind him because daddy worked with him. So he came and picked us up from the barbershop. I have to get our, we have to go get our toys, forget that. We went straight to a, trail, a trailway bus. And the bus took us out to Bremerton, Washington, Seattle, Washington, the ferry. We stopped in Idaho uh, and we got up to eat. They wouldn't let us eat at the white places. So we had to go find a black family. And you know, you have to remember this is the day when there was no TV, no MTV, no, you had, you had nothing to hold on to your identity with. In the books were C. Jane Run and C. Spot and so forth, and no, nothing about black history or anything. Tonight, we're talking about 1943. Radio was uh, Blondie and Dagwood and Gabriel Heater, and the uh, black uh, figures there were Rochester, Beulah, and Amos Nandy, and who were white, Gosman <laughs> and Friedman. And so it was very, at the time you don't recognize it, but you're trying to say, who the hell am I? You know, what, what, what are we about? You know, if you don't have a mother that, that leads you down that road, you, you're trying to figure out who you are. And so we spent half of our life trying to figure out what was up, what, what, what we were all about. Now we go from the biggest ghetto in Chicago to being the only three black kids in Navy Yard City. And there's a serious contrast. And it, it dances on your head a little bit because uh, we, we carried switchblade knives in those days and the, and the kids in Remington didn't know what they were. So you, had no, you, couldn't, use, you couldn't use fear anymore <laughs> like they used on us in Chicago. Basically, we hadn't seen white people before until we got to, to Washington. Strange, you know, but uh, uh, the ghetto was so big in Chicago and uh, they had us outside of the town and you had to walk up a hill three miles and up there they had a place called Sinclair Heights which was clearly for all the blacks that came in to work in the Bremerton shipyards, the Navy yard and my father used to go down every morning and catch a bus down at the bottom of the hill to go to the Navy yard and I had a paper route then so I'd only didn't have much time with him, so I'd get up at 5 or thirty with him just to be with him for 15 minutes while he got ready put his little gray hat on and went down the hill and not stop in my paper box and, and watch him go over the hill. And anyway, we got into all the trouble you could ever imagine because we, we figured that if uh, the Jones boys and... All the gangsters in Chicago ran Chicago. Well, we had our own territory now. <laughs> all the stores, all the crime, we, we were in charge of everything. My stepbrother and my brother, it was amazing. Amazing. And, and uh, of how much trouble you can get in when you don't have anything else to do. And I hadn't discovered music yet. And it was 11 or 12 years old. And we did everything. Everything you can imagine. We, we stole a box of, honey, a box of uh, honey jars one time. Went out in the woods and took care of the box, and I don't think I'd touch Honey again for 20 years. <laughs> I never wanted to see Honey again. And there was a big armory up there where everybody played basketball, and it was a community center, really. It was, uh, it was an ar- army camp right there, because this was heavy, you know. But, uh, Seattle and Remington, were that was a hot spot during the war, because that's where they left to go to Japan. So it was really, things were happening all the time. And uh, we'd break into this armory at night, weekends and, and at night, and we'd eat pie, lemon meringue pie, and ice cream, and we got too tired of eating it, we'd start to play, throw it at each other, and whatever trouble you could get in, you know, just awful. And one night, we went, broke in another door, and uh, I broke into this door, and there was a piano there, and I just walked around the room to see what was there at first, and then hands hit the, kind of hit the keyboard, and I remember from Chicago next door when I was a kid, there was a little girl named Lucy that used to play piano, and uh, from that moment on, when I touched those keys, I said, this is it, <laughs> I'm not going to do the other thing again, I'm going here. That's what happened. You were 11 or 12 years old, and you came across this piano. Mm-hmm. Did, had you had any? No. You knew nothing about it? No being. training, no. No, well, not at all, at that time. But then after that, uh, I was probing and probing and waking Ray Charles up uh, when he came to town, waking him up at 5 or 6 o'clock he in the morning. He was a boyhood friend of yours, Ray Yes. Charles. We Yes, I was 14 years old, and Ray came to town from Florida. He wanted to get away from Florida, and he asked a friend of his, because he had sight until he was seven to take a string from Florida and get him as far away from Florida as he could get and boy Lord knows that's Seattle <laughs> as far if you go any further you're Alaska and Russia
0: you know the night
1: now La-de-day-a. is the right time La-de-day-a. to be La-de-day-a. with the one you love now, now oh and so Ray showed up and he was at 16 years old and he was like God, you know, he had an apartment, he had a record player, he had a girlfriend, two or three suits. I mean, I, and I used to come, when I first met him, you know, he'd invite me over to his place, I couldn't believe it. He was fixing his record player, he'd shock himself because there were glass tubes in the back of the record player and the radio. And I used to just sit around, I, guess, I can't believe you're 16, and you got all this stuff going, because he was like, he was 30 then, he was like a brilliant old dude, you know, he knew how to arrange, and everything, and he used to taught me how to range in Braille and uh, the notes, he taught me how to, what the notes were because he understood, he said dotted eighth and sixteenth and that's a quarter note and so forth, and I just struggled with it and just plowed through it. I didn't understand key signatures in front. Well Now, wait a minute. So was Ray Charles your first music teacher? Is that what you're telling well, me? Well, I played, I played before I met Ray, but uh, I, had, I had discovered the trumpet of Brimerson. Mm-hmm. No, he was one of them. Uh, Bumps Blackwell was too, uh, and a, tr- a, b- a barber named uh, Eddie Lewis, and then we finally got a formal teacher named Frank Waldron, who was a trumpet teacher. He was a uh, African American with a bald head, and he used to wear striped pants and like uh, like the English Parliament guys. He like he stepped out of the Harlem Renaissance or someplace. And he had a little pint of gin, a little flask, every night he'd take a sip. You know, three or four. <laughs> And he said, let me hear you play something. And he was legit, you know, from, a, uh, from the legit Rafael Mendez, you know, the legit trumpet players. So we had our bebop thing. We had our little look and, you know, a little swagger and our fingers all the way over there. So uncorrect, <laughs> incorrect, rather. And I played Stardust just like I played in the nightclubs. Because we were playing in the nightclubs when we were 13 and 14. But how did you learn to play? How I did you know. discover this? The, start the- playing. That just, music was going to be your ticket. Just start playing. Just, just do it. Just blow in it and, and sound bad for about a year and, and you can sound a little bit better <laughs> and then you get a few jobs and you get a little band together and four guys that sound half bad, if you're 25% each we can get 100% you know <laughs> and so Charlie Taylor and Buddy Catlett, four guys got, we got together and, and we practiced every day you know, every day and uh, I would write an arrangement and was writing this thing called a sweep from the four winds, and on the trumpet parts I had, with an asterisk, I'd, I'd say, play all B naturals a half step lower because it sounds funny if you play it B natural straight. I didn't know that there was a key signature of a flat on the third line to would take care of all that. But uh, uh, you know, you just learn step by step. But somebody was saying, idiot! You know, there's one flat and there's two flats and three flats. And I would, yeah, key signatures. That's a great. Con- that's a great concept. <laughs> it's been 500 years old, right? <laughs> it, it, did you have any idea that you had this inside of you? Yeah, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I didn't know what it was because my grades in music were terrible before that. And But then the love, and this passion came for it. And that's when somebody lit a flame, a candle inside, and that candle that still burns, and it never went out. And I'd stay up all night sometimes when so my eyes bled to write the music. I was writing a suite for a uh, concerto and blue for something at the school for concert band and i was fearless
0: in high school quincy jones told journalist irv Drasnan, not only did he write and arrange he also tried out every instrument he could get his hands on percussion clarinet violin b flat baritone horn sousaphone and trombone
1: I got the trombone because the trombone players in the marching band got to be up front with the majorettes <laughs> because of the slides. <laughs> I love that, <laughs> but my heart was really with the trumpets, but they were too far back. <laughs> and I finally got to trumpet, uh, and I said that's what I really feel. And so, I guess 1947, we got our first uh, first job for seven dollars, and the, the year after that, we played with Billie Holiday, you know, with the Bumps Blackwell Charlie Taylor band, and. We got, our confidence was building because we danced, we sang, we played all, we played modern jazz, we played uh, shottishes, pop music at the white tennis clubs, you know. Uh, we play the black clubs at 10 o'clock, you know, and played rhythm and blues and for strippers and do comedy and everything else at 3 o'clock in the morning we'd... Uh, We'd uh, go down to Jackson Street in the Red Light District and play bebop free all night because that was really what we really wanted to play, like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Dizzy and all those people, and they'd come through town. And then the following year, Bobby Tucker, who was Billy Holiday's musical director, came back, and, and he liked what we did, evidently, and you know? we played with Billy Eckstein. And then Cab Calloway came through. We opened for Cab Calloway, so our confidence was very strong. We were like big fish in small ponds, you know, and that's why... At one time in New York, most of the guys that were happening by the time I finally got there were not from New York because they got their confidence in these small cities. And you just start in New York, you're dealing with the biggest guys, <laughs> biggest in the world. You're dealing with Charlie Park and all the big bands and everything.
0: Quincy Jones was obviously confident enough about his musical abilities to play with his jazz idols who came through town. But he had a personal confidence, too, that he says came from being good at the odd jobs he held, whether as a shoe shiner or a newspaper boy or a laundry assistant, he did it all. And he got an extra boost of confidence from an unexpected bit of success at the Robert E. Kunz Junior High in Bremerton, Washington.
1: You know, there were just a few black kids in the school, like 2,800 kids there. And I'll never forget his name, a little white kid named Robin Fields said, I'd like to be your manager for you running for boys' club president. I said, you've got to be out of your mind. You know? What are you talking about? You know? That's never going to happen. And I was wrong. And I won. And it was, I was messed up because my family of 1947, they moved to Seattle, and I had to get up at 5 o'clock every morning and catch the ferry, the Kalakala, and go back to Bremerton every morning because I was Boys Club president. And I'm telling you, I, I really put a hurting on my sleeping time because I couldn't write music later. How do you night. account for that? Black kid in a white school, and you no become idea. Boys Club president? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm I bet it, it was amazing, though, but it opened up a... It, what it did to me, and, and, and uh, the, back then, is, is it took, uh, it made me realize that I had to take everybody one on one. It really did. I mean, that was really clear to me that I couldn't say, bang, this is this, and everybody's this, and they like this, and all that stuff, the things we usually do as human beings. I couldn't do it because Robin Fields was there, and I couldn't, I couldn't put him in that, in that number. I couldn't include him in that number, and it was great for me.
0: That lesson would help him endure what he was about to endure as a black musician, a kid, traveling throughout America. It's not that Seattle in the 40s was without racism, but...
1: Then we hit the road, man, and we get to places like Texas. This is when every place had a white and colored... To wait in the bus stations and the, and the water fountains all over America, you couldn't stay in a white hotel anywhere. We'd play dances in New Orleans, and they'd have chairs down straight down the middle of the thing with chairs to go both ways, and white on this side and that side. Other places in New Orleans and and uh, I mean in, in North Carolina and South Carolina, they'd have two fifty, three fifty general admission for the black people, white spectators a dollar I still have the signs, you know. They'd sit upstairs and drink and watch the black people dance, you know. Oh, it was unbelievable. We'd play juke joints, and people would get shot, and uh, we'd go through Texas. We had, always had a white bus driver because we couldn't stop at the restaurants. And, and we'd, sometimes we'd see effigies like uh, black dummies hanging by nooses from the church steeples in Texas. Now that's yeah, pretty heavy on the church steeple, and they've got a black dummy hung, which means don't stop, don't even think about coming here. And the bus kept moving. You know? And then they'd finally get places where we'd get to drive it. The white driver would go in and get food for, for the van. And uh, uh, sometimes in Newport News, we slept. I uh, remember Jimmy Scott and I slept in a funeral parlor where the bodies were. <laughs> there was no hotel. So this guy said, I got a place you can stay here for these two days. And when you got $17 a night, you can't, you know, you're not thinking about some suite at the Waldorf. You know? What does that do to you psychologically? It's painful. It's a killer. It it slaps your dignity you just right. I mean, all of the things that I loved about the idea of these these proud, dignified black men in the bands and so forth, and I saw the older ones wounded, and it wounded me ten times as much because I didn't, I couldn't stand seeing them hurt like this. You know, and and I know their mentality, their sense of humor, their wit, their intelligence, and everything. Totally aware of it, and I see people with one tenth of this, you know. Or taking the stance of uh, of uh, trying to degrade them, you know, trying to be a giant and not make a midget out of them to feel bigger, and I saw it over and over and over and over and over again. It's amazing. I mean, we uh, and and the thing is about it is when you're unified, you get a sense of humor about it, or else you either have to get really. And we we have confrontations all the time. Please, right? we had police run us out of town many a time. You know. Um, uh, and they'd have the, the joke, you know, you go in a place, you know, we always say, we don't serve niggers. We say, that's cool, we don't eat them. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, you just got to have to get an attitude about it, you know, because it just, you can't let it take you out like that, you know.
0: Quincy Jones says his world was turned upside down once again when he got to travel to Europe for the first time at 19.
1: It turned me upside down in many ways. Uh, it gave you some sense of perspective of past, present, and future, it took uh, the myopic uh, conflict between just black and white in the United States and put it on another level because she saw the turmoil between the Armenians and the Turks and the, the Cypriots and the Greeks and the Swedes and the Danes and the Koreans and the Japanese. Everybody was <laughs> had these hassles, and you saw it was part of basic part of human nature: these conflicts and. It opened up. It opened my soul. It opened my mind.
0: And then, in 1956, when he was 23 years old, Quincy Jones organized a State Department trip for Dizzy Gillespie. Another voyage, another revelation.
1: Obviously, you know, when they sent a black man around the world as ambassadors, you're going to do a lot of kamikaze work. And we did. We, uh, they sent us to all what they call hardship post number four uh, in Washington. That's They have categories and then all of the plum jobs were in London and France, the ambassadors and so forth. And USIS in the other parts of the world were pretty screwed up. And uh, so we went to Abadan, Iran, and Tehran, and Dhaka, Pakistan, Karachi, and Istanbul, Damascus, which is the dreariest place in the world. Um, and it was very exciting. Some of these people had never seen Western instruments before. And we got a last-minute call one time from the White House to go immediately from Istanbul and go to Athens, Greece, because the, the, uh, the Cypriot students were stoning the embassy, and uh, whenever that happened, we got called immediately. Go in there <laughs> and play for, the, for for these same kids, and that, that was pretty scary, because uh, you could feel the energy and the hostility against the, the, whatever policy was going wrong at that time whether it's Beirut and Israel, or the Cypriots and Greeks. And after that concert, uh, they, they rushed the stage, the kids, and we thought we were in trouble. And instead, they put Dizzy Gillespie on their shoulders, and they were just running around the auditorium, singing to him and everything. It was great.
0: Back home, though, the Civil Rights Movement was just starting to build steam, and there was plenty of reality to contend with for a young black musician. But it doesn't seem to have left you feeling bitter. Well, you way. know,
1: the thing is, yeah, it makes me, it's angry. It makes you angry. But I always felt to to, to, to harness that anger, you know, let's do something that's going to mean something, you know, not rather, okay, you can, if so if you punch some dude out, you know, that doesn't do anything because as you're going down, he says, you're still a nigger, you know, and I've seen that happen. Uh, so that doesn't straighten. So that's why I get involved in, you uh, know, in, all the battles there are, but on another kind of a level. You know, when I was in France, uh, Mandela asked me to come down. I've been involved with the uh, South African Mandela for 30 years. Because you have to do something. I mean, you, in, inside, it's, it's, you, you fight, you're fighting for your, your dignity of your children, your grandchildren, and on your, the, the, the kids that, that don't, should even be subjected to this kind of kind of a thing.
0: Quincy Jones has been involved in a lot of causes over the years. He was active in Martin Luther King's Operation Breadbasket and Jesse Jackson's Operation Push and he produced one of the top selling songs of all time to raise money for victims of the famine in Ethiopia There comes a time when we heed a certain call when the world must come together as one There are people dying Oh, when it's time to lend a hand to life The greatest gift of all We can't go on We Are the World involved many of the most popular musicians of the 1980s, dozens of them actually. Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Tina Turner, Stevie Wonder, and on. If anyone was capable of gathering together that kind of star power, it was Quincy Jones. Somehow from the time he was a young teenager, he was able to find a place at the table with the greatest artists of the day. They helped him grow and he made them sound the best that they could. That was and is one of his magic powers. Here he describes how he came to join forces with Lionel Hampton's band while he was still in high school.
1: Well, Lionel Hampton's band came to Seattle too. That was a very significant thing in my life uh, because, as I said before, we played with Bumps Blackwell's band and Charlotte Taylor's band uh, for Billie Holiday and then Billy Eckstan at 14 or 15 years old. So, uh, Hamp came through there then, and that was my dream to be with that band more than any band because I, I saw every band that came through Stan Kenton, Basie, Duke, Louis Armstrong, everybody was down front, hip, hypnotized every night. I just couldn't believe it that there is the way. To be a man, to have your dignity, to be proud of what you do. And there were 18 musicians. There was something about it that just really hit a serious core in me. And I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted, that's why I wanted to write so quick. And as soon as I picked up the trumpet, I, I heard the arrangements in my head of that, those ensembles. How do you write for 18 musicians or, or, or eight brass and five saxes and not have them playing the same notes?
0: Lionel Hampton somehow heard about this 15-year-old who was writing and orchestrating a complex piece called The Four Winds Suite, and he invited Quincy Jones to join his band.
1: I, I hurried up and got on the bus. I didn't want to ask my parents or anybody who would take a chance of losing it. And I got there, and I just shut up like a little mouse, and everybody got on the bus. It was almost ready to take off, and Gladys Hampton got on and said, What's that child doing on this bus? And I said, Oh, my God. She said, I don't get that boy, off that. that's a child, that's not a <laughs> grown-up, put him back in school, you know, she said, I'm sorry, son, but you know, you're too young, go back to school, and I was destroyed, you know, and so she says, we'll talk about it later.
0: And they did, but during the intervening years, he finished high school in Seattle and landed a spot in a prestigious East Coast music school, far, far from his father and difficult stepmother and his schizophrenic mother, who'd gotten out of the psychiatric hospital in Chicago and followed them out west to Washington State.
1: And I really wanted to get away from home. I wanted to get out of that house. I didn't want to be there. Eight kids and a stepmother, and I just wanted to be out of there. And so when I got a scholarship from Boston to the Schillinger House, which is now the Berklee School of Music, I couldn't wait to get out of there. And my aunt sent me a ticket by train to go there. I stopped in Chicago and then went to Boston at night. (laughs) The most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life because it was pitch black. And you get there and you've got your trumpet and this little bag, your bag of clothes, not much. No place to stay, and I, but I had a scholarship. And that was some of a blanket, a security blanket I could hold on to. And uh, one thing led to another. I walked around to the neighborhood to try to find a where I could stay. I got a place for $10.
0: Things were going well enough. But then Quincy Jones got the call he'd been dreaming of. On the line was a member of Lionel Hampton's band. They remembered him and wanted to know if he was available to join them on tour.
1: I was so happy, I'm telling you, you have no idea. And I told the dean there, I said, I'll be back. And he knew I'd never be back. Because once you get out there with professional musicians like that and working 71-nighters in a row, and all through the south, and band busting 700 miles a night with these guys that have been out there 30 years. You know, the old guys. I used to watch the old guys. I really respected their wisdom. And uh, there was a guy named Bobby Plater who wrote the Jersey Bounce. Wonderful man. He was kind to me, too. I used to watch him and the guitar player who'd been out there 30 years, and they knew all the cheap hotels. You know, we made $17 a night. You had to learn how to do that, too and they had wash and wear shirts the carry in the sax case so i got one of those and they when they get in the hotel we go to father divine's so for 15 cents you know have the stew and stuff and say peace when you go in the door and you put your pants fold them up and put your pants underneath the mattress we couldn't afford to get them clean pressed and you put your coat in the bathroom turn the steam on hang your wash and wear shirt there wash your handkerchief put it on the mirror <laughs> and the next morning it's dry and you pull it off it's already depressed, you know. <laughs> and how I, did you learn how to read music? I don't know. I mean, I, I, just, <laughs> I just started and had to pay attention. It's, it's, I mean, that's logical though. And if, you, if you're standing out from all the other people, you know you're playing it wrong, so you have to understand the, the, the value of each note and so forth. And there's only four beats in each bar or six or three or whatever it is. And uh, I don't know, you just use your mother wit, you know common sense, really. A lot of people say, well, Count Basie and Earl Hines don't read music. That's amazing. I mean, it has nothing to do with each other. Reading music is just a a way to document it so you can remember what to play at the same time. But uh, the creation of music has nothing to do with that at all. That's a sense of, you know, it's a divine sense in a way, you know. So you learned on your own? Yeah. There was a man named Joseph Poe, who was a military uh, officer, and he had a dance band. He used to be with Wings Over Jordan, which was a famous choir. And so he asked me to babysit for him, and I loved to babysit for him because I could read his Glenn Miller orchestration books. And he had uh, uh, Frank Skinner underscoring about movies, and I mean, bam, that was like walking to a wonderland. I said, what? Um, and then I got hung up on movies when I was 15.
0: Quincy Jones would eventually write, arrange, and record the scores for dozens of movies and television shows. Huge, really memorable ones like The Pawnbroker, In Cold Blood, The Whiz, Roots, In the Heat of the Night, and one of Woody Allen's first films, Take the Money and Run. And then. There's the Austin Powers theme song. Though that well loved cut, Soul Bossa Nova, was actually released on a Quincy Jones album in 1962, 35 years before the first Austin Power movies came out. In Goldmember, the third of this ridiculous trilogy, Quincy Jones makes a brief appearance, actually. He's shown in the opening sequence, conducting the orchestra during the recording of the film's score, when Austin Power sidles up to him to plant a kiss. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Quincy Jones! This is where the movie gets its mojo, baby. Groovy. Okay, there's no way I was not going to play that. But picking up the thread again of Quincy Jones's earlier life in music, he learned a lot about writing movie scores and all facets of music on his own through books and fearless experimentation. But learning on his own often meant asking his heroes for their guidance. Most of them, he says, stepped up.
1: The generosity of the older musicians, Count Basie, who almost ad- adopted me like from 13, he was, became, you know, gradually became, we closer and closer and close until we ended up playing on conducting for him and, and, and Sinatra, you know. It was just like a dream, you know. Uh, they, they knew I wanted to do whatever I did well. They, they could tell, I, I guess they could feel that. And I, I hadn't gotten it together yet, but they, they knew I wanted to, and they knew one day I would, I guess, you know. I don't know why they'd waste their time otherwise. Uh, but Clark Terry, too, he'd go to play until 2 or 3 in the morning. I said, well, I, Mr. Terry, I'd really love to study trumpet with you. He said, well, what, what, what's a good time? And you know, I said, well, the uh, uh, only time I can do this before I go to school at 6.30, so I'll get home <laughs> to two, 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning. and. Uh, uh, they, but they were there, you know. They were there, you know. Ray Charles was there. Uh, Clark Terry was there. Uh, Count Basie was there. It was just amazing. I mean, to all my life, Count Basie was there. He was like ooh, man, manager, mentor, father, brother, everything. He just uh, he helped me get jobs when I had my big band later. And uh, I remember we played up in New Haven, a job that he didn't want to take. And he said, OK, I got a job for you at band. But, uh, uh, you got it. And so they got the contracts, we were with the same agency, Willard Alexander, and we, we got a third of what he would get naturally. And uh, it was a twelve or 1,300 seat place, and only about 700 people showed up, and I was really disappointed and hurt. You know, I had a big band from New York, Basie showed up, you know, and he said, okay, he said, uh, give the man half of the money back. I said, what do you mean, give half of the money back? He said, he put your name down front, and the people didn't come. You, he will be uh, important for you in the future, and you shouldn't hurt him because the people didn't come. Give him half of his money back. I gave him half the money back. He only had to teach me how to be a human being, you know. And uh, a lot of the guys were like that, just took me under their wing. And that's why I, I automatically help young people. I just love it, you know. Because they, they did that, that to me. They were there.
0: And it wasn't just the jazz musicians who were there. In the 1950s, Quincy Jones traveled to Paris to study with Nadia Boulanger, the French composer and conductor who taught many of the leading musical artists of the 20th century, including Aaron Copland, Philip Glass, and Daniel Barenboim. She taught Quincy Jones lessons he's carried with him his whole life.
1: Nadia Boulanger used to say, there's only 12 notes, so listen to what everybody does with those 12 notes. That's all they are, really.
0: Quincy Jones seems to take comfort in that quote, comfort and pride, because in fact, he has spent his musical life embracing all kinds of music, every variation of those 12 notes. Here's a number for you, 100 million. That is how many copies of Michael Jackson's Thriller have sold worldwide. Quincy Jones produced it. It was, and still is, 30-some-odd years later, the number one best-selling album of all time. So in purely numerical terms, it was the pinnacle of Quincy Jones' career. And you start to free- Jones followed up by producing another Michael Jackson mega hit, Bad, and around the same time, he served as producer on the movie version of The Color Purple. He convinced Steven Spielberg to direct it, and he cast a young, aspiring news anchor and actress named Oprah Winfrey as Sophia, introducing her to a national audience. Naturally, he also created the soundtrack for the movie. The year was 1985, the same year he produced We Are the World, by the way. So Quincy Jones was very much in the public eye, and soon a filmmaker approached him wanting to make a documentary about his life. Quincy Jones says it was the first time he really stopped and looked back at his life in Chicago.
1: When we went back there, the people that produced the show, the the, the film, they just let me get out of the car. I hadn't been back in 50 years. To this home where we lived in Chicago. And I got out, and I was hoping it would be a supermarket, you know. Or everything's gone. It was exactly like it was when we left. The paint job that my father left there was the same paint job. Every room, every radiator, every vent was exactly the same. The backyard, the same wooden fence where this happened, was all there. And um, Lucy, This girl who was next door, 12 years old. When I got out of the car, she was like 63 or something in a wheelchair. And it was explosive. It just blew my psyche to, shattered it, you know. Uh, And when we went upstairs, uh, Lucy, they helped her upstairs with the wheelchair. And she said, that's the bed where they put the straitjacket on your mother. And I had totally blanked it out. But they say, the therapy I've had said that trauma is frozen at the peak. And as soon as she said it, I saw her. That they were the four guys holding her down, and she was trying to to get away. And they they strapped her down and put the straitjacket on her. And then we were out front on the front step, and uh, Lucy held my brother in her arms and closed his eyes as they put her in the ambulance. And uh, uh, I sat on the other step and I closed my eyes too, and I was crying and I was singing the song. Uh, Oh, 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 somebody touched me. It must have been the hand of the Lord. It all came back. All of these things that you've totally blanked out of your mind. It's a strange feeling to feel it reenter your soul, the reality, that you've blanked out conveniently You It's unforgettable stuff, you know.
0: It would still take several more years before a friend was able to help Quincy Jones make the connection between what he'd been through as a child and the central role of music in his life. That friend was the well-known health expert, Dr. Dean Ornish, and this is what he said to Quincy Jones.
1: He said, somehow you, in trying to survive, you found a way to totally transfer all need or everything involving a mother into your music or your creativity. And I used to go in a little closet, a little tiny closet that had Four barrels with some two by fours and a workbench on it, and just sit there and just turn the world off every time the, the the pain came in, and go inside and just. Since I was very young, is to take all the negative things and the painful things and take that and convert it into something beautiful and positive. So because I, I could feel that if I turned it on myself and with bitterness, it would kill me and it would take me out, like it did my brother, and. Uh, I didn't know what was going, I didn't know what the process was about, but here I am at sixty, six years old, when Dean tells me what this is all about, and it's strange, because it took my brother out, it killed him. And uh, I had transferred all of the need of what we didn't have, so I didn't, I didn't need it anymore, because I had something else that was beautiful, it was mine, I could always depend on, I could always go there, no matter what happened, racial things, or whatever, whatever happened, I could go there and it would be okay. It was my own little world. I could make it what I wanted it to be.
0: It is still the healing balm that gives Quincy Jones peace and confidence and joy. If I had one wish right now, it would be that Quincy Jones could have produced this podcast episode for me. But in a way, I guess he did. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. If you want to share Quincy Jones's inspiring stories with your friends, Twitter is always handy our hashtag is what it takes now said you be you be starting Funding for What It Takes comes most generously from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation.